New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Even though we want life to be comfortable and pleasurable, and even though we often expect it to be, life is often difficult, disappointing, and painful. Though we can't control what happens to us, we can learn to respond in healthier, more adaptive ways. It is possible to train our brains, our bodies, and our hearts to access our intuitive wisdom, not only to get through the tough times, but to grow and become more conscious in the process. This training is supported by research scientists who have found that combining mindfulness and neuroscience, which includes neuroplasticity, can lead us to more resilience and well-being. Resilience is part of our human birthright, and today we'll explore the idea that anyone can learn to be more resilient, more flexible, more open to new perspective, growth, and change with our guest, Linda Graham. Linda Graham is a licensed psychotherapist and meditation teacher in full-time practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. She integrates her passion for neuroscience, mindfulness, and relational psychology through trainings, workshops, and conferences. She publishes a monthly e-newsletter entitled Healing and Awakening into Aliveness and Wholeness and weekly resources for recovering resilience archived on her website, lindagram-mft.net. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being and Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and even Disaster. Join us for the next hour as we explore rewiring our brains to be more effective in the world and experience a greater sense of well-being with our guest, psychotherapist Linda Graham. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Linda, welcome once more to New Dimensions. Thank you, Justine. It's good to be back here. It's great to be sitting across from you, especially today, I think. Uh, I, you know, one of the words that you use in your book that, that gets repeated several times is something called response flexibility. Mm-hmm. And you say it's never too late to rewire our brain. What do you mean by response flexibility? So the capacities to be resilient are innate in our being because they are innate in our brain. 
And response flexibility is one of the functions of our higher brain, the prefrontal cortex, the center of executive functioning. So besides doing a lot of things that help us be resilient, regulating our nervous system, regulating our emotions, managing our emotions, developing a sense of self-awareness, Response flexibility is one of the functions of that part of our brain. It means we can shift perspectives, shift gears, change how we're perceiving things, how we're responding to things. And that develops over time as we learn from experience to be more flexible, to be more adaptive, to be able to shift gears. So when we know the experiences, the tools, the exercises that will train the brain to be more flexible in its responses. We're actually training the brain for our own resilience. So we can learn how to do that. And that's the beauty of the neuroscientist discovering neuroplasticity, that the brain can change and grow and learn lifelong. The brain can change how it responds to experience lifelong. We can change how the brain responds to experience lifelong. So when we know how to choose and use the tools that will do that, we not only have a choice, we have the possibility of becoming more resilient. I think we even have a responsibility to become more responsive in how we respond to life. You mentioned the prefrontal cortex, Mm -hmm. and I know you also mentioned in your book, and I want to tell our listeners, you have like 130 exercises that are very relevant to this subject that just (laughs) you just take us through just a myriad of exercises that are available to us, and they're so clear. I just want to congratulate you Mm -hmm. on that. You You mentioned how the prefrontal cortex, that's a more... A newer adaptation, brain adaptation from our mammalian brain and those other parts of the brain. You also mentioned this part of the brain, which you just said, was the CEO of our emotions. Is it, is it, that- I call it the CEO of resilience. So this prefrontal cortex, you're right, it's the most recently evolved part of the brain. So it developed later in our evolution. It has more sophisticated functions. It's the seat of our consciousness and how we process our experiences consciously. But I call it the CEO of resilience because it does so many functions that help us respond to our experience differently and choose how we want to respond to our experience differently. One of the things that you talk about are the five intelligences. Mm -hmm. And at the top of that list is one that I'm especially interested in is the somatic body. Mm -hmm. And this is where we think that everything happens by choice and thinking and being analytical. But what is a somatic body and how can we deal with it and how do we deal with Mm -hmm. it in our emotional, uh, in different emotional states? So I do present the exercises in resilience in a certain order. And we begin with somatic intelligence because our first responses to anything that ever happens come from our body. And when we can pay attention to the signals we're getting from our body that we're in danger or we're under stress, and when we can use the tools of somatic intelligence, and I've organized them by breath, touch, movement, and visualization, we're able to actually regulate the responses of our autonomic nervous system so that we're not too revved up, 
We're not in too much anxiety or fear. And we're not too shut down. We're not collapsed or withdrawn in shame or depression. But we actually are in this natural baseline physiological equilibrium that is called the range of resilience. And when we can be calm but engaged in our body brain, then that creates a sense of safety in the brain itself. And it's more able then to keep the higher brain online and decide what to do in any given situation. So we begin where the body brain begins. So, all right, let's, let's give an example. Let's say, um, let's talk about shame. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the beautiful exercises you had if I remember correctly, was actually taking a body position mm-hmm. of shame. Mm-hmm. And can you describe that exercise? It just really okay. struck me. So it's an exercise that I learned from Natalie Rogers, who was an expressive arts therapist and happened to be Carl Rogers' daughter. And shame is an emotion that we feel, but there are physiological markers of every emotion in the body. So how we experience shame or anger or fear or sadness, it's all different in the body. So if you shift your posture, you're going to shift your autonomic nervous system, you're going to be able to shift your emotions and your mood. So the idea is, yes, to embody the posture of shame, which for most people is chest caved in, head bent over, eyes held down, sometimes the hands covering the eyes. It's a position of collapse. And so if we get into that physical position, and I'm careful when I ask people to do this because it can evoke the feeling of shame. It can be a powerful practice to do this. But you let your body inhabit that posture, and then without even thinking, you let your body move to a posture that feels opposite. You don't even have to know what to call it. But most people, their body will straighten up, their spine is taller, their hands may go over their heads. And so they're coming into a position of more energy and more power. We can go back and forth between the more difficult negative posture and the more positive, stronger posture. And that is what rewires our sense of what we're feeling, what we're experiencing. And people can come into a sense of strength and energy and power. Now, this is now taught as power posing. And you can come into a position of strength and confidence and energy. But I think it's actually more most helpful to go from the negative to the positive, go back and feel the negative, feel again the positive, because you're actually moving from the negative to the more positive posture. You're not faking it. You're actually feeling it in your body. And so it, is there a residual effect there when... Let's say you're going through your day and suddenly you feel shame. Mm-hmm. And somehow because you've done this exercise quite a few times, you you're, you automatically then start to evoke this, this more positive um, power, power mm-hmm. pose. So one of the mantras in the book is little and often, meaning we, pr- we do our practices, small practices, repeated many times. When we repeat the experience, you're repeating the neural firing that is learning about the experience. So the brain will develop its own cue, its own habit of responding so that, yes, when the body goes into the shame posture, the brain goes, oh, but I can stand up. It'll be different. You can remember that without even having to go through conscious processing. And, and this also, you're, what you're describing, I think is 
one of the keys is this is not bypassing the negative emotion. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do any good, <laughs> really, <laughs> to try to bypass the negative emotion because if we're trying to distract ourselves or deny that it's happening, our body is still carrying it and it can come to our conscious awareness or we can act out about it. So that's why in resilience, I teach quite a few practices from the mindful self-compassion protocol with the permission of the people who developed it. Chris Germer at Harvard, Kristen Neff at University of Texas, Austin, because I don't know of a protocol more powerful in helping us deal with negative emotions, not bypassing them, but actually bringing mindful awareness to experiencing them and compassion to ourselves for experiencing them. And for however well or poorly we're handling them, compassion for ourselves, we're a human being, and this is hard. So the mindful self-compassion allows you to actually be aware and accept and be with and tolerate and work through an emotion. Any emotion will pass through the body if we let it, if we're not blocking it. The average emotion will last about 20 seconds. So if we can be with it for that short period of time, it will move on on its own. I want to remind our listeners that I am here, and that's also very good news, uh, Linda. I'm here with Linda Graham, and she is a licensed psychotherapist and author of Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. And to know more about her work, you can go to her website, lindagraham-mft, which is marriage and family therapist, mft.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with therapist Linda Graham, and she is the author of Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. And we're talking about compassion, and you may have some other thoughts on compassion and how we can develop more of it. Well, I've been talking about using compassion as a way of dealing with difficult, negative, overpowering emotions, because the compassion allows us to hold the emotion and hold ourselves for having the emotion long enough for the emotion to be able to move through. 
But it's also true that compassion and any of the positive emotions that we practice actually shift the functioning of the brain out of the negativity bias of the brain, out of contraction, out of reactivity, into more openness, into more receptivity, into possibilities of learning and optimism. So anytime we practice compassion, kindness, gratitude, joy, awe, delight, we're shifting the functioning of the brain. So it's important to cultivate positive emotions, not just to feel better, but so that we can actually do better. The direct, immediate, cause and effect outcome of these positive emotion practices is resilience. So when you say developing these positive emotions, you've also mentioned, and we've had on the program, Dr. Rick Hansen, Mm -hmm. and he's talked about our negative bias, Mm -hmm. the brain's negative bias. This is, Mm -hmm. he calls it like we have Velcro for negative emotions and negative thoughts and Teflon for the positive ones. Mm -hmm. And so we might have a hundred positive things happen and we have 10 in a day and we really focus on that 10. So you're saying Mm -hmm. we're really, we have to be conscious in shifting this and it is possible. Well, I'm saying over time, as we practice our tools and we become aware of our responses to whatever we're dealing with, whatever the external stressor or the internal message about that stressor is, as we become more aware and more responsive, then we're going to notice the negativity. We're going to notice the positive when it happens. We can make the choice to cultivate more of the positive deliberately so that it's there to antidote or recondition the negative. And as we become more aware, we're giving ourselves possibilities of choice. We're able to respond differently. That's increasing our response flexibility. So we work with the negativity bias of the brain like we would work with any other derailer of our resilience. So, Linda, um, the catchword there and the challenge there for us is to be aware and to make ourselves more aware in the moment. For me, I like to go to the body, not to analyze it with my mind, but to notice, okay, one of the things, all right, here's an example. One of the things that really trips me up that mm-hmm. I I find I just flash mm-hmm. so quickly when I get frustrated over technology. <laughs> Cyberduca, yes. Cy- what do you call it? Cyberduca, suffering of <laughs> cyberspace. Right? Oh boy. Does it does it if I can't figure it out and it's not working correctly and I think I've done something wrong and many times mm-hmm. I've found that it wasn't even me it was something out there that mm-hmm. was that mm-hmm. was not quite right but I find myself just flashing with frustration mm-hmm. and anxiety and then well you notice me just right there mm-hmm. my shoulders went up mm-hmm. And then I feel that tension yeah. in my shoulders, mm-hmm. and then it goes down to my solar plexus. And mm-hmm. so, and there is what, I, mm-hmm. that's my right. kind of trigger, and that's what mm-hmm. I do is that I take a deep breath. Or I try to be aware in the moment right. and take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. So I can offer a tool that might be very useful and helpful. But first I want to say that as you're talking about being mindful of what's happening in the body, and in our mindfulness training, we focus on different 
objects of the mindfulness, sensations in the body, our emotions, our thoughts, our belief systems. So mindfulness is trying to deal with anything that we're facing. Just like we have compassion for anything that we're facing, we're resilient with anything that we're facing. It could be technology, it could be health, it could be our moods, it could be relationship. Whatever we're facing, we want to be resilient in the face of it. So what I would suggest when you have that startle and frustration and anger about technology, the first thing to do is put your hand on your heart because that activates the oxytocin, the brain's hormone of safety and trust. It's the brain's direct and immediate antidote to the stress hormone cortisol. So as soon as you put your hand on your heart, your blood pressure can go down, your heart rate can go down. It's really wonderful then to also sigh because when you have a deep sigh, you inhale, but then you exhale longer. (sighs) That resets the nervous system. It's a natural resetter of the nervous system. So you can have a couple of sighs to reset the nervous system. Then I would bring the compassion to yourself that this is what you're going through. Now, I tell the story in the book because it really happened just this way. We had a power outage a few years ago. There was a big storm in the Bay Area, and we lost the power on my block for about 36 hours. So this was January. No heat, no lights, no phone no refrigerator, no stove, no internet. And I was fine until I woke up in the morning and there was no internet. And I wanted to connect with my world. And I noticed myself getting frustrated and cranky and grumpy. And I took a break from being in my home office and I walked through my kitchen and there's a magnet on the refrigerator that says, may I give myself all the compassion I need. And I go, right, I teach this stuff, right? So I put my (laughs) hand on my heart and I begin the phrases because it interrupts the automaticity of what I was experiencing. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I accept this moment exactly as it is. May I accept myself exactly as I am in this moment. May I give myself all the compassion I need. And I went through that maybe two or three rounds and I felt my brain open back up. I felt my brain expand. I have internet at my office. That's 10 minutes away. And I tell the story because when I was in my automatic survival responses, I couldn't think straight. But as soon as I did that practice and came out of the negativity into a more open mind space, there was the answer. I have internet in my office. So we don't practice mindful self-compassion to solve the problem, but we practice it to create a space in our brain from which we can solve the problem. So that's an important tool for our resilience. I'm reminded of the research of Barbara Fredrickson, and she did research just on this very thing. She had uh, some people who somehow were in a negative emotional state and some who were in a positive emotional state and she had them sit in front of a computer and she had them describe what was on the computer and those that were in the positive emotional state could had great peripheral vision and they could describe a greater range of what they were looking at whereas those in that negative they just were focused like on one little part of that mm-hmm. computer. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying, it is a physiological thing. That's right. So we know that our survival responses narrow our vision and they narrow our hearing as well. 
And when we're not in fear, then all of that can open back up so that we have a broader perspective and we're also hearing and processing information differently. So we use the positive emotions to do that opening up of the brain and of our perspective. So it's not a luxury. It's actually an important tool to be able to do that. And you describe a little portable uh, pharmacy. I, I'm going to call it a portable pharmacy because as you put you, you just as you described it, mm-hmm. you put your hand on your heart, you mm-hmm. sigh, mm-hmm. and you said it starts to release this hormone of oxytocin, which the brain loves because right. it's such a feel-good sort of thing. It feels good because it's the hormone of safety and trust. And that's what feels good to us when we're in our survival mode to the brain. We want to be able to feel safe and trusting. So we can add to that, which I often do when I teach people, hand on the heart, you're breathing deeply into the heart center, you breathe in a sense of ease and goodness. Then you remember a moment when you felt safe and loved and cherished with another human being or with a pet. And you actually evoke that feeling so that the oxytocin is washing through your body. And you hang out there for 10 or 20 or 30 seconds so that you can savor that feeling. And that really, really shifts your capacity to respond. So you're adding imagination Mm -hmm. to it or visualization. That's right. and, And the brain... It doesn't distinguish between a real event and an imagined one. Oh, well, the brain can distinguish between imagination and something real. But the same neurons fire in the brain when we imagine something as when we see it in real time. So what we imagine can be real to the brain, and we can use that as a resource. So hand on heart... Breathe deeply, do a sigh, and imagine a time when we were truly loved and, and cherished. Mm-hmm. And we might, might kind of think of that in advance so that we have that at our ready. Is that, you oh, know? I, I'm, I'm always asking people to practice and rehearse and pre-wire their brain so that when there's a startle, hand goes to the heart and the people come to mind automatically. This practice is powerful enough that the stress response doesn't even have to come up in the first place. You can preempt the stress response when you've trained yourself to do this pattern. So this is, again, goes back to uh, what you say is um, often do it a little, a little, and, little, often. little and often. Do right. it little and often. So it's not like you have to practice for four hours once a week. It's No, in fact, it's better to practice for five minutes many times a week. That's much better for our learning. There you go. There you go. And in another one that you, you talk about as far as accelerating the brain change and the practices that we do in reconditioning the brain is uh, safety primes neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you mean by that? How, how can that help us? So the brain will contract when we sense danger. And when we feel safe, the brain opens up again, the dynamic that we were just talking about. So when we have a sense of safety in our body, brain, and being, then that does prime the neuroplasticity. We're open to learning. We're not defending ourselves. We're open to learning. So 
we try to create that sense of safety, both whatever conditions we have in our environment, but the fastest way actually to get that sense of safety is to interact with another human being that you feel safe with. That's a social engagement system of our brain. Okay. And, well, we'll talk about that in just one moment, that, that, that being with someone that we feel safe with. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Linda Graham, and she is the author of Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. And if you want to know more about her work and her uh, newsletter, her e-newsletter, and all of her resources on her website, go to lindagram-mf, as in Frank, T, as in Thomas, mft.net, lindagram dash mft.net, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Linda Graham. She is a licensed psychotherapist and the author of Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. And Linda, we're, we're talking about being with people, developing trust, developing um, a, a sense of safety. And you're saying that we do this, the best way to do this is with other people with whom we feel safe. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to say something about how we do that in developing that. So if we begin with our evolutionary biology, which is we are programmed evolutionarily when there's a sense of danger or threat to reach out to another person, to a caregiver when we're very young, for safety and protection. We don't have to learn how to do that. That is built in. It's the basis of secure attachment, which is the basis of our inner secure base of resilience. So when we're very young and our brains are developing, when there's a sense of danger or threat, we will reach out to a caregiver for safety, comfort, protection. If that happens, then not only do we feel safe, but we also begin to get a sense of confidence that we can reach out and someone will respond. So we get to begin to develop that sense of resilience. The quote from my mentor, Diana Fosha, that I love, the roots of resilience are to be found in the felt sense of being held in the mind and heart of an empathic, attuned, and self-possessed other. So if we experience that early on, if our attachment conditioning has been optimal, we'll have that inner secure base of resilience. But that can be recovered and regained at any time when we feel safe and held, loved, validated, valued by other people. And so we do that in our relationships throughout our lives. That happens even with social connection, that we're wired to want to be with people. Our brains are social brains. We get a sense of well-being from being with other people when it feels safe and resonant. So this is our biology. We're learning how to use that by cultivating relationships 
where we get to feel safe and valued and important. And that is a great support for our resilience. I'm going to add a sidebar here. Shame is the biggest derailer we have of our resilience because we tend to collapse and become paralyzed. And shame happens when we feel we've, we've done something that people we depend on for our safety and our well-being, we've done something that has disappointed them or they disapprove of, and we're afraid of being cut off or exiled or rejected. So the need to be connected is so powerful in our biology, in our body, and in our being that we need to learn how to use that sense of connection, sense of being bonded with people to support our resilience. So that's where the oxytocin, circling back to that, comes in because it is the hormone of bonding and belonging. It's what happens between a mother and a child. And so when the oxytocin is released, we come into what Sherry Taylor called tend and befriend or calm and connect. It brings a sense of safety to the brain. By the way, this whole attachment cycle is, okay, I'm home with someone who loves me and takes care of me. There's a threat. I go to them for protection. I get the protection. I get soothed. Now I'm ready to take a risk and go off in the world, but another threat happens, and I go back to my secure attachment figure to get comforted and protected again. That's the cycle. We feel safe. We take a risk. Uh Uh-oh, something happens. We get scared. We come back. We get comforted and protected. I, I want to ask you a question about that, and I'm glad that you brought up um, uh, Sherry Taylor because we've seen the research about women have a greater tendency to tend and befriend. And so is there a difference between men and women here? Because I think culturally men are taught to be independent and independent of that, reaching out. Uh, is there a difference? So the biology underneath the culture, is men do have more vasopressin, and it's a molecule that's chemically similar to oxytocin. So it's true women have more oxytocin, men have more vasopressin. What the vasopressin does for men is it encourages them to protect. So the woman is tending and befriending, and the man is protecting the family. Now that can be um, expressed in various cultural forms where the man defends the home or provides for the home and the woman takes care of the children. It can be culturally expressed, but it's based in our biology. So does that mean, so I, I'm, when we talk about feeling safe, do men have a little more uh, challenge to, to actually use this kind of exercise to, be, to feel safe? Do they have a bigger challenge? Men are socialized to be the protectors and the providers. So they may actually feel a sense of safety from providing and protecting the family. That's where a sense of safety might come from for them. In order to feel safe, we need to be able to acknowledge our vulnerability a little bit, that we need to feel safe, that we need to feel protected. And in the culture, that is harder for men to feel. I don't think biologically it's harder for them to feel, but culturally, men are trained to not feel that or not let that show if they feel it. And in fact, there's some wonderful work being done now in the Mindful Self-Compassion Protocol for men by Daniel Ellenberg, Steve Hickman, who are, who are allowing, they're calling vulnerability to be the ultimate courage. 
to be able to acknowledge what's really going on and bring compassion for that is the ultimate courage. So yes, we have some cultural conditioning to deal with, but I think nonetheless the biology is still, we can use these tools to create a sense of safety so that the brain remains neuroplastic. I'm just recalling I DVR what a lot of things, and one of the things I DVR'd while I was away on a trip was the CMA Awards. These are the country music awards, mm-hmm. and it's great to DMR to, to go through the commercials because there's so many of them. But And I'm not even through the whole thing yet, but there was a song that Garth Brooks sang for the first time, and even his wife, Tricia Yarborough, I think is his wife, was sitting in the audience. She had not even heard this song yet. And I, I don't recall the name of it, but it was a whole song of how much he loved her and his feeling he could feel vulnerable because of her, because she was the strength to allow him to feel that vulnerability. I, 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 I People should just kind of find that song somewhere because mm-hmm. it was so powerful. I, mm-hmm. I was really shocked mm-hmm. that a man would come up with such a song that is talking exactly about mm-hmm. what you are saying. Well, I think what's important for resilience is that we develop our capacities to be with and work with any of our emotions, and then even to work with any of the cultural messages or any of the internal messages that we might have about those emotions, because when we can shift our perspective, we're going to be more flexible and more resilient. So it's just being able to look at anything that's happening and our reactions to anything that's happening and be able to shift gears. That's really the key. My, my colleague Frankie Perez says, how you respond to the issue is the issue. <laughs> there it goes. And I, I want to go also to our, our relationship with ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about safety, you know, finding others, but also finding safety and self-love within our, mm-hmm. for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, and I think that you mentioned, this is our home base. This is where we can mm-hmm. come home to, mm-hmm. that we don't have to depend on others always. We, mm-hmm. we need to develop this within ourselves. So there's a chicken and egg thing going on here. It's true. I mean, the relational intelligence within chapter is about developing the self-awareness, self-acceptance, self-appreciation, self-love that is the foundation of our inner secure base of resilience. How that develops is back and forth in interactions with other people, where we can experience feeling loved so we come to love ourselves. It goes back and forth. That's why I have relational intelligence within and relational intelligence with others, because they really dovetail. So I'm, I'm thinking also, you say, search out people who have healthy brains, <laughs> like hang out with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, right. that's very beneficial. Do you have right. any comments on that? At two levels. One, I included that in the book in the chapter on brain care and taking care of your brain. And there are so many things we can do to take care of the physical brain, exercise and sleep and nutrition and learning something new. And hanging out with healthy brains is one of those things because the brain stays more active and engaged. But we also know that that at a social, cultural level, that when we're hanging out with 
healthy brains, people who have done their work, so to speak, and can be managing of their own experiences and resilient in their own experiences, then we don't have to be defended or guarded or manipulated or on guard anything. We can just be open, which is the safest condition for the brain, for learning and for being resilient. So that's what you you would recommend that is a lifestyle choice, so to speak. It's a lifestyle choice, and it's a choice that prolongs life. <laughs> now more and more research is showing that the people who have the best longevity are the people who are happy in relationships and in community. When there's social connection, we live longer. Okay, all right. So developing those and searching out those and really being aware of when we are just around a lot of negative people, that's going to drag us down. Uh, so to have too much of that in our lives may not be healthy. So I've um, come up with sort of a metaphor. My colleague Elijah Goldstein and I talk about this. Just like periodically you clean out your house and you go through and recycle the things that you don't need anymore— Periodically, we have to prune our relationships as well. If relationships are negative or toxic or make us feel smallified or ashamed, it might be important to be able to prune them and cultivate relationships like you cultivate positive emotions, cultivate relationships that are healthy for our well-being. So that that's that's a really good advice. Maybe not as easily kept, so to speak, because it's going to take some effort on our part. Well, and it takes skill. So the relational intelligence with others has a lot of skills of setting limits and boundaries, communicating without shame and blame, negotiating change in a relationship, repairing a rupture, coming to forgiveness. There are a lot of skills we can learn that allow us to relate to people in healthier and healthier ways. I'm, I'm thinking of one of the exercises that you have in, like, repairing, let's say, a relationship is that Just Like Me uh, mm-hmm. exercise, which we can talk about in, in a bit. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Linda Graham, and she is a licensed psychotherapist and meditation teacher, and she publishes a monthly e-newsletter entitled Healing and Awakening to Aliveness and Wholeness, and she has many, many resources on her website, and I suggest that you look them up, uh, and they are archived on her website. Go to lindagram-mft.net, as in marriage, family, therapist, mft.net, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Linda Graham, and we're talking about resilience. And she is the author of Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. And Linda, I just mentioned before the break, I mentioned when we are looking to repair, let's say, Mm -hmm. a relationship, and this Mm -hmm. is always challenging, Mm -hmm. you have a wonderful exercise, and it's called Just Like Me. Mm -hmm. And if you can describe that for us. So I'm going to give credit to Mark Coleman who wrote Making Peace with Your Mind, because that's where I got the exercise. Again, using that with his permission. The idea is to overcome the sense of otherness or difference that might create a gulf between us and a person we're relating to. And relating that back to repairing a rupture, the most important thing in repairing a rupture is to prioritize the relationship over being right. Ah. When the relationship is more important than your position or your opinion or being right, then you can focus on doing the repair with another person. So Just Like Me helps that because it cultivates our sense of common humanity. Just like me, this person wants to be happy. Just like me, this person has fears and disappointments. Just like me, this person wants to be important in their lives. Just like me, this person struggles with their own emotions, what whatever works. Because then that creates a sense of commonality and common humanity between you and the other person. And that's what allows to put the connecting to be more important than your own independent individual opinion. There are so many. This it, We're just giving listeners a little flavor of some of these exercises. And another one I want you to mention, uh, it was a story that you told that I, I really loved. And I think it wasn't your client, but it was someone else's client mm-hmm. who um, his the name you used in the book was Sean. Mm-hmm. And he had he was plagued by negative emotions, mm-hmm. and he was given an exercise of doing something before he even got out of bed. Do mm-hmm. you recall this? Oh, yes, of course. Oh, great, please. <laughs> so, actually, Sean was my client, and he complained about waking up in anxiety every morning, so there wasn't that sense of well-being. And so I encouraged him to simply do whatever practice he wanted to do when he was home in bed waking up, gratitude practice or a mindfulness practice or hand on the heart, but to not get out of bed until he was in a state of calm, in a state of well-being. And he would say, I mean, it would... He would wake up, it would take him an hour. But then it took 35 minutes, and then it took 15 minutes, and then it took five minutes. And one day he woke up in that state of calm. So he had retrained the managing of his nervous system. So I offered that story simply to say, we can choose to do a practice when we repeat it many, many times. Over time, it will have an effect. And not only then do we learn something that manages our experience and we can become more resilient. But we learn that we can. We learn that we can be a learner, that we can train our brains to become more resilient. And that's part of our resilience, is to learn that we can do that and trust ourselves that we can do that. And I think that this one is especially relevant to these times because um, there's a lot of pressure on us. There's um, like climate change or the polarization of politics or terrorism or these, you know, just... uh, over and over, we're just getting all this news, just bombarded with mm-hmm. news. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a very good, I thought, practice to just practice this in the morning so that we don't wake up and we just kind of mm-hmm. think, oh, another day. I wonder what bad news is going to happen today. Well, then I would also 
suggest, because all the things that you mentioned are not just discrete individual stressors that we have to deal with. It's, it's a change in the whole system of what it means to be alive on this planet. And so it generates a kind of existential anxiety. And I think it's important that people come to a practice, they come to their own values that has a larger spiritual dimension to it. Somehow we are part of something that is larger and vaster than we are. And whether that's coming to the wise view or wise understanding of the Buddhist tradition that leads to wise effort, we need some way to come to terms with we don't know, we're not in control, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's certainly impermanence, and coming to terms with those realities of life. So I've done some research on post-traumatic growth, and we talk about that some in the book, of being able to accept what's happening and to be able to resource with other people and to be able to find the positive even in the midst of a difficult, hard time because that gives us some breathing room. It gives us a respite. But then also finding the lessons, the silver lining, the gift in the mistake, and coming to a coherent narrative all this happened before, here was the event, here's how I dealt with it, here's what I learned, and now here's my life going forward. This is what I learned because of that event, not just in spite of it. This is a new baseline for my life because of what happened, not just so, in spite so of you're, it. So you're looking at your own um, time that you were successful. Mm-hmm. When, so, you, when you coped well, when you coped when you met the adversity well with some skill and some flexibility. So that's another one that you need to have ready at the fore when, mm-hmm. when you need it, that, mm-hmm. that, that maybe you do some journaling about times in your life that you coped well. Yes, that would be part of the coherent narrative. And journaling is actually a very useful tool to help people cope with something that's difficult because we get a little bit more emotional distance from whatever is happening. But to open up to a larger spiritual perspective often helps people cope with these very, very, very difficult, overwhelming experiences. To know that there's something larger holding them or there's some larger meaning and purpose even if we don't fully understand it. Where I go is like to ask a question and say, well, to be curiosity. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I go for is mm-hmm. curious like, well, maybe I don't know enough and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, I'm curious as how this is all going to turn out. Mm-hmm. And it's turned out well in the past mm-hmm. and it's not mine to worry about, but it's mine to to act in the moment with my center of influence and mm-hmm. do the best I can to be right. of benefit. Right. And that's where I go, or I try to go. There was a quote that I learned from uh, Clarissa Pincola Estes through Jack Cornfield, and it's something like, we can't solve everything. Our task is to mend the little patch where we are. Yeah, yeah. there you yeah. go. There you go. And that's good. I mean, that we, we say, okay, we can get overwhelmed by the enormity of what's being mm-hmm. presented to us. Mm-hmm. But if we each do that little patch, mm-hmm. those right. patches and like mm-hmm. overlap. And, and I think it's important to see where other people are being resilient, not just ourselves. So Helen Keller said, all the world is full of suffering. 
it is also full of overcoming. And when we look at examples of other people who are meeting their difficulties and their stressors with resilience, with compassion, with reaching out to other people and being of service, then we get buoyed in our own efforts to be resilient and compassionate and engaged. So it's, again, the common humanity, that sense of being connected to other people. As Mr. Rogers used to say, look for the helpers. Uh, look for the helpers. And uh, I'm reminded, too, of something that, that you talk about in, in your book, in your work, and that has to do with um, attention and that, that where we put our attention, this is foundational. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'd love for you to mention attention and, and how important it is where we focus. So in order to be able to be resilient, we need to be present <laughs> and we need to know what we're dealing with. And so that's, com- that's focusing our attention on one of the phrases I use in the book is know what you're experiencing while you're experiencing it. Because otherwise, you're not going to know how or what to respond to. So it's the basics of mindfulness, of paying attention to what we're experiencing while we're experiencing it, so that we can discern what possible options we might have in our responses. Give an example. Anchor that somehow for us. So here's one of the exercises that I also teach in the book, and I got this one from Stuart Eisendroth, who researches mindfulness and depression at UCSF Medical School. And the exercise is, it's a visualization, it's to, of course, feel safe and comfortable present in your body. And then imagine that you're walking down the street, down a sidewalk in your hometown, someplace where you feel comfortable and at ease. And then you notice someone on the other side of the street walking toward you, and you wave and you call out, hello, and there's no response. You notice your response to their lack of response. Then, after a moment, they notice you, and they wave and they call out hello, and you notice your response now when there's a connection. And it's simply mindful attention to the difference in our responses, because usually there is a difference in our response. And when we feel connected, we feel open, and if we feel disconnected, we might go into shame. So it's simply paying attention to what's happening so you can decide how you want to respond to what's happening. Yes. Yeah. And we only have, like, like I don't know, <laughs> less than a minute. I, I want you to just say something about taking a digital vacation. <laughs> I just... Because now more research is showing the impact of the overuse of our digital technology on our brain, we're losing capacities of concentration, we're losing capacities of empathy, we're losing capacities for solitude and reflection. It's important to take a vacation from our digital devices to allow the brain to recoup and function the way it has evolved to function, not with so much overstimulation from our devices. Okay, that's a big order. Thank you for <laughs> kind of encapsulating that. And you can look at more detail in uh, Linda's book. So I want to remind our listeners, I want to thank you so much, Linda, for being with us today. Thank you, Justine. It was a lot of fun. Oh, great. It was great for me, too. It was great to go through your book and find so many great exercises. I've been speaking with Linda Graham. She's a licensed psychotherapist and meditation teacher, and her website is lindagram-mft.net, lindagram-mft.net. She is the author of 
resilience, powerful practices for bouncing back from disappointment, difficulty, and even disaster. And you can also get to her website by going to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3662. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.